Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm coming to you this week from the great state of Texas. I spent this year reflecting on and looking at the work that Susan and I did together and thinking about how to move that forward and continue on that cause and that mission. And then what we had really settled on and identified as our key contribution was identifying and supporting talented people. Most famously, probably, we were early supporters of Stacey Abrams over a decade ago and supported her and helped her navigate some of the challenges of ascending to a position of influence and impact that impacted the state of Georgia and then the whole country. And so we're now looking at trying to do something similar and identify and support people in the state of Texas. And so that's what I'm doing here is making the rounds as a state that is 61% people of color and trying to identify who are talented people who could do the similar kind of work in and are doing similar kinds of work in Texas that was done in Georgia. So that's what I'm doing in the state of Texas, but that's not necessarily the focus per se of today's podcast, but the focus of today's podcast is shining a light on talented people. And so we're going to be talking to one of the talented people within this country driving critically important work all across the nation. He leads the Working Families Party, and as I've said before, that the work that Working Families Party is doing is some of the most promising organizing that I've seen in this country really since the rainbow in the 1980s. It's visionary, it's hopeful, sophisticated, long-term, and rooted in the tradition of social change that we're trying to embrace and lift up. So I'm excited to discuss this moment we're in, where we need to go, and talk with our guest about what he's doing to help us get there. And for that conversation, I'm joined by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Have you worked off the holiday food and do you want to introduce our guest? Hey, Steve. If you knew how much holiday food I had, you would know that there have not been enough days to work it off. Also, I cooked, I love pumpkin pie. I Mm. made three. And uh, that means that I'm still eating pumpkin pie. So I think there's a grace period of at least a week before you have to start really working it all off because there's leftovers. Right. Uh, That's what just... Just so you know, that's how I operate. Thanksgiving lasts almost a week for me. (laughs) And I am super stoked to have our guest on today and to have him back on. Our guest today is Maurice Mitchell. Maurice is a nationally recognized social movement strategist and organizer for racial, social, and economic justice. Maurice has worked as an organizer for the Long Island Progressive Coalition and for Citizen Action of New York. He was also the director of the New York State Civic Engagement Table After the police murder of Mike Brown, Maurice located to Ferguson, Missouri to provide strategic support and guidance to the Movement for Black Lives activists. And in 2015, he helped organize the Movement for Black Lives convention in Cleveland. Maurice is a graduate of Howard University, and he grew up in Long Island. Shout out to the East Coast folks. And uh, he's a child of Caribbean working class parents. Maurice has been the national director of the Working Families Party since 2018. Welcome, Maurice, or should I say welcome back? We're so happy to have you back on and catch up with you. It's good to be back with you all. We really appreciate you making the time. Um, so let's let's jump in, right? So you've been building this movement that is bridging both the uh, movement building work and then more of a traditional civil rights sense and also being involved in electoral politics. We talked a little bit before we got started about Elizabeth Warren, you guys back Elizabeth Warren and the presidential campaign. And you've been focusing on building this new political party, Working Families Party has its name in it, has that word in it for a reason. So can you just share with us, what does it mean to create a third force in American politics? And what does it mean to create a new party? And how does that relate to the Democratic Party? So... I think most people remember the Republican Party before MAGA, right? It actually was a different party, meaning there were different people in leadership, sort of the more traditional Republicans, right? But maybe the coalition wasn't exactly that different. Like there were always, well, not always, but certainly since um, the mid to late 60s, there there were definitely elements of white nationalist and racist in and around the Republican Party, but they weren't um, they weren't the leading faction. Right. And so we've witnessed how how parties can actually shift and change. In fact, many, many years ago, the Republican Party was actually like the left party right. and the radical party. Right. So so we know that that parties um, aren't static. Right. That they shift and change their coalitions, change 
They even change where they might be on the ideological spectrum, their leadership changes. So what happens is different forces pull them, right? And the force that I think is pulling the Republican Party into its gravitational pull is this very particular white Christian nationalist, sort of ethno-nationalist, right-wing populist force that has pulled the Republican Party into its center of gravity that can help understand how the party just, I don't know, 20 years ago under George W. Bush and the party now is very, very different, right? And I would say that there is a center-left, center-right, center of gravity that is at the center of the Democratic Party. Mm. And But there's a lot of different people and a lot of different factions mm-hmm. in and around the Democratic Party. And so there definitely is like a left faction. So people like Bernie Sanders and people like AOC are part of the Democratic Party coalition. But I don't think most people would say that their politics are at the very center mm-hmm. or the force that is pulling the Democratic Party is a democratic socialist force or anything like that, right? It's more of like a center-right, center-left, maybe neoliberal consensus, maybe just a little bit off of that type of force, right? And so we're taking several steps back and we're looking at the two main forces and the two main parties, and we're looking at the the outcomes that are leading both to the very, very rigid two-party system. In our country, we have a uniquely rigid two-party system. There are other there are other countries that have two party systems or even multi party democracies where basically there are two main parties. Mm-hmm. Our country's two party system is very very rigid. It's like baked into election law, right? State by state by state. Right. That wasn't always the case. We that that's where we arrived at this sort of duopolistic Republican Democrat sort of system. There's a on top of that system is this first past the post electoral system where it's not even about the majority is whoever gets the most votes gets the whole thing. Right. So even if you get a plurality, you get the the whole prize, right? That's the first past the post system on top of this rigid two party system. And when we look at that and we look at the two forces, this like right wing populist, white nationalist center of gravity and this sort of center left, center right center of gravity. And we look and we're we're kind of witnessing this, this these structures. And what we're, what we've witnessed at the Working Families Party is the fact that when you add all these things together, number one, it creates the incentive for a faction of one of the two parties in order for them to express themselves fully to take over one of the two parties. And so this is why the MAGA faction has invested in taking over the Republican Party instead of being their own thing, right? And then also it creates a natural sort of incentive for political violence because there's very limited space. And so if you can't express yourself through the venue of one of the two parties using politics and using the traditional means of politics, then then naturally the next solution is political violence or apartheid, actually changing the structures and overcoming that barrier through anti-democratic means. None of these things we think are helpful (laughs) or good for working people, right? right? And so at the Working Families Party, we're trying to do two things. We're building a third force that is a pro-worker, pro-multiracial, pro-people force that can pull not just one party, but pull the entire political system closer to the people. Mm -hmm. So instead of just having these two polls, there'll be three polls. And we're building a party around them. And by party, I don't mean one particular organization. I mean a collection of individuals, activists, voters, think tanks, donors, candidates, um, labor institutions, grassroots organizations that are part of one shared political commitment and and have established a shared desire for a long-term governing. And so that's what we build every single day at the working. So let, well, for our, our listeners, I just want to uh, share a couple of things about third parties. And I guess the question anymore is, is kind of how do you remain relevant? But it's interesting. One of the things, one of the things I did not even know until maybe a year or so ago, it's so fascinating to me how much um, Abraham Lincoln has lifted up 
as the epitome of success in terms of power. I was in Cleveland the other, you know, see my um, father at Thanksgiving. There's a, uh, you know, billboard says failed, failed, failed. Then a picture of Lincoln. Lincoln got 39% of the vote in 1860. And so what happened was you had a third party. The racists could not agree. And so they ran two candidates who split the vote, which is what enabled Lincoln to actually get in. So I just think that that's fascinating. On that level, historically, you were mentioning it was first past the post piece. That's how uh, Democratic presidential primaries used to work by congressional district. Whoever won the most votes in the congressional district got all the votes in that congressional district. Entirely lost to history, just for the efforts of this podcast, is that Jesse Jackson fought against that to change that so that you would have proportional representation by congressional district which then made it more democratic. And so Jesse was able to do better. And what's completely lost to history is that reform is what enabled Obama to win the primary in um, 2008. So that's, I just think, some history I wanted to share with folks. But at the same time, there's also been a lot of, there's a lot of question around both is it a risk and then um, how realistic or viable is it to have a third party as a, uh, something that has you know, effectiveness and impact. And so how are you kind of navigating that? Sure. Well, to me, it always comes back to what your strategy, right? And so there's a lot of different third-party strategies. What we like to say is that we're a non-delusional. You know, what, that, what that means is that we live in the we live in the world that everybody else lives in, where basically most political expression is run through either the Republican or Democrat. We live in that world. We don't pretend that that world doesn't exist. We don't pretend that state by state, there's all of these laws and this legal regime in order to enforce the two-party duopoly. We don't just like ignore the fact that that's true. And so what we do is like, all right, so my parents are both immigrants from the Caribbean. And so I know, I know a little bit about cooking what you have in the, in the kitchen, right? This this idea (laughs) that, you know, you can't just use Grubhub or whatever, or like, you you just kind of have to open, open the, the cupboard, look what you got and figure out how to make a feast with that. Right. And so we, take that approach to third party politics. So in places like New York, where fusion voting exists, and I don't want to go down a whole fusion voting rabbit hole, but basically it allows for parties to cross endorse candidates of other parties. So in New York and in Connecticut, where fusion voting also exists, when many voters went into the polling place and voted for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, they had the option of voting for them on the Democratic Party line or the Working Families Party mm. line, right? You might ask, like, why is that significant? Well, it allows us and our voters to be able to come together as a community of interest and vote for a candidate. And then afterwards, tell that candidate, our community voted for you for these particular reasons. And therefore, in governing, we want to leverage our votes, and you could count them, want to leverage our votes in order to to support you in governing in this particular way, right? Um, and there's a number of other things that are really useful about fusion voting. In fact, like the history of our two parties, like third party history and fusion voting is baked into that into that history, right? The Republican Party kind of came out of fusion. And so we do that in New York and Connecticut, right? In Philadelphia and in the city of Hartford, Connecticut and other cities, there's this thing called the minority party a seat. And basically... Historically, that's meant that the Republican Party has been the minority party, like in a city like Philadelphia, where it's like the the enrollment is like eight to one, right? It's a huge Democratic city. You just had to basically show up and file the paperwork as a Republican. And you would get the Republicans would get these two at large minority party seats. At a certain point, we reasoned, hey, we think in a Mm -hmm. very, very blue city, there's more of our voters. There's more pro-worker pro-interracial, pro-queer, pro-immigrant, pro-progressive change voters than there are Republican. And so Hmm. let's run our own independent Working Families Party candidates for at-large city council. And in 2019, we did. Kendra Brooks became the first ever since the city charter uh, in history non-Republican to hold that seat as a Working Families Party person. And then very recently, Pastor Nicholas O'Rourke joined her. So now we have two black, independent, progressive, pro-worker, pro-queer, pro-black, pro-environment, at-large city council people who are WFP people 
um, in, in Philadelphia, one of the larger cities in our country. Now, in places where you don't have the minority party set-asides or you don't have fusion voting, one of the things that we also assess is that in this country, like I talked about how the Republican Party has been captured by MAGA, right? And so if you're serious about engaging any real policy debates, you're not going to find those in the Republican. They're, they're debating about mm-hmm. whether or not January 6th was either either like organized by the deep state or is it organized by the globalist, right? Like that is their their conversation, right? Um, they're still debating how much Trump actually won. <laughs> that is the debate that they're having, right? So serious policy debates in this country happen inside of the Democratic Party. And the venue in which they happen is the Democratic primary. And so we use the Democratic primary in order to have the conversation that we want to have about whether or not our policies should be centered in the interest of workers or the interest of corporations, whether or not we should have a more progressive taxation system, you know, how we should lean into racial justice, how we should approach uh, public safety. Those debates that normally you might, uh, maybe in a in a generation or two before they were happening between the Republican and Democratic Party, they're really only happening inside of the Democratic Party. And so we utilize the Democratic Party primary in order to engage those debates. And we surface our own people. We call them working families Democrats who run as Democrats in the Democratic primary. So, for example, Congressman Greg Kazar, he's somebody who we supported. You're in Texas. So we supported Greg when he was on the Austin City Council and he made his way to Congress and he engaged. He was in there was an open seat. And we supported him in that open seat primary, and he's now a sitting congressperson. And there's a number of other people, you know, somebody I'm really uh, proud to call a friend and a comrade, the current mayor of Chicago, Brandon Johnson, who I first met him when I first got this job, and he was a teacher and union organizer, right? And, And we supported him when he was running for municipal government five years ago. And now he's the mayor of one of the largest cities in in our country, right? These are independents who don't necessarily come from the traditional pathways for governance, which which kind of weeds out. It's a good vetting system for independence, integrity, (laughs) progressive values, right? So we we create our own pathways so we can support people who have backgrounds like, you know, Jamal Bowman, who was an educator, or the mayor of Chicago who was a teacher and an organizer, or Greg Kazaro also was an organizer, you know, or Summer Lee, right? People who actually have these experiences. I mean, it's so funny, like often many of our candidates, almost to the one, because they're working class people or they come from a working class, a class experience, or they are still living in working class conditions and they have to deal with things like paying off their school loans or juggle paying off traffic tickets. Those are often used against them in like, right. but it backfires <laughs> because people are like, oh, I can identify with that. <laughs> I've been there, you know. Um, and so those are the types of people that we're able to support. And as you know, modern electioneering is very, very, very expensive, yeah. which also makes it harder for people who don't have these networks where they could just kind of touch base with all of these wealthy people that can max out to them. And so we also provide the support through grassroots means for folks to be able to be competitive, maybe not dollar for dollar with folks who are either uh, self-funded or have the backing of industries, but we're able to be competitive through our our grassroots network. This is like, I, I'm, I know we've had you on before and you've explained all this and I'm so glad to have you on again because I think that it's sinking in deeper for me and it's always just so compelling and you're making it so clear. And just to help listeners connect the dots, I know you mentioned Jamal Bauman and Summer Lee. Um, we've had them on before as guests. And so uh, listeners, you know, if you're listening to this episode and you know, want to hear from the candidates from who uh, Working Families Parties have supported and um, helped, you know, their careers. Those are two leaders, political leaders, who this is the context, right, for their journey. And I think that's really fascinating. And then I loved talking to them and their personal journeys are, are fascinating. So it's really good to just sort of get that, have this lens um, and thinking about how 
they got to where they are. Uh, real quick question was how, what year was Working Families Party founded? I don't know if you have mentioned it already, but I was Yeah, 25 wondering. years ago, 1998, uh, yes. Working Families Party was founded. And it was founded in this context when, you know, it was during the Clinton years and they were experimenting with triangulation. And they believed that they could basically lock Republicans out and just have, you know, cycle after cycle of democratic governance if they stole the Republicans' conservative secret sauce as it related to economic policy. That they would just undercut the Republicans with economic policy. And basically the theory is we could retain our coalition by offering social rights concessions to our diverse coalition, but then making a deal with organized capital and Wall Street and not necessarily offering our coalition economic rights, which much of the chagrin of the labor part of the coalition. And so some people inside of that labor part of the coalition and some grassroots organizations got together and built the Working Families Party. Started in New York because New York had fusion voting. Previous to that, there was this idea called the New Party, where folks were trying to do this in every state. Uh, but the Supreme Court had had uh, different designs. And they said, yeah. well, fusion actually can't be the law of the land everywhere, but it can be the law state by state. And so mm. that's how that's how WP came together. And it was a multiracial sort of labor community coalition that came together to build the first working families party in New York. Fascinating. And now, yeah, now we're, we have, we have a presence uh, of some sort in 20 states. So we've, that's we've, amazing. Uh, grown, that in a very short amount of time, yeah. short amount of time. I literally, it, it is a short amount of time. Said, when you said, <laughs> I was like, 1998 wasn't 25 years ago. And I was like, oh, well, I guess it was. So. <laughs> yeah, once you do the math. Yeah, it's a trip. It's a trip. It's a trip how, how, um, how like time works, how it contracts and expands. Like, yeah. you know, when I do his, like when I do historical readings in, in order to understand where we are today, I'm just taken by how I was like, oh, the Civil War didn't happen that long ago. Right. Yeah, we, we know all about that, Maurice. <laughs> Steve's no, it's like that actually Steve's didn't a... happen that way. Yeah. Good. You know, it goes and down the rabbit like, hole on history. Yeah. 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 And, you know, yeah. you see these pictures, these horrific pink pictures of lynchings. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. yeah. Like yeah. some of the younger people mm -hmm. in these pictures are still alive. Are yeah. I think about people. that sometimes. Yeah. How not, yeah. not long ago that was. Yeah. No. The, uh, Speaking about the Working Family Party's history, you guys just had your first convention, the Working Family Party yes. has, in Philadelphia in October. Um, and freshman rep of Summer Lee, who we just mentioned before, again, she's a former guest, you know, representing from Pennsylvania. Uh, she was one of the key speakers. And as a note for listeners, again, uh, Representative Lee, along with other members of the squad, are facing an expected $100 million campaign by the lobbying group APEC to challenge mm -hmm. them next year in 2024. Steve, you were at the convention last month. I know from, you know, you came back and gave the team like a whole sort of overview and summary of what a what an amazing convention it was. And so I wanted you to also share with our listeners a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Yeah, well, I, th I think we talk about a little bit in our in our newsletter. And, you know, I also have tried to be, you know, a student of history as well. And so what in looking at movements, and what are the elements of movements and movement, I'm looking at building power, and what are the components of them? And so that is what was so inspiring to me was the multiple elements all together in the same place. And so you everything from politics, Summer Lee gave this amazing um, speech, to having partnership with key elements of the movement in terms of top labor leaders, the head of the teachers union in Colorado, and those entities coming and lending their support and solidarity, Very some of the top uh, progressive donors in the country, spending the whole weekend being there. And then all of these activists from all of the years. And so I actually, I can tell you this, Maurice, met somebody we actually didn't know, but we know people in common from the 80s. And so we actually connected at, and then wound up you know, at, at, at the convention. And then also art and culture as a fuel for the movement. And that being infused with politics and reflecting the energy and the sense of those pushing for social change. And so 
um, Maurice had mentioned the Philadelphia um, City Council candidates, right? So they both came up on stage and Nicola Rourke, rather than launching into a speech, he launches into a song. And so he started singing and bringing the whole crowd in song and then they turned to their speeches. So it was just a very both impressive and inspiring combination of the elements that I feel are critical to building power um, and creating a, creating a movement. Um, but Marie, do you want to talk about why? Because this is your first convention ever, right? So you want to talk about why you guys decided to, to do that? We, when I came in five years ago, one of the things that I felt like I had a mandate to do was to truly, truly nationalize the party, right? Because we, we were in a number of states, but really focus on building that sense of national community and really thinking about the party as a third force that we're all collectively building. And I mean, the, sh the short answer is like, it took, it took 25 years to get there, <laughs> truly. And, uh, you know, I'm, you know, my organizing training tells me that you, it, there, there are no shortcuts in organizing, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you really have to, you have to make assessments about the overall conditions, which we don't have any control over, but it's our job to like make good assessments about what's actually happening out there. And then also the, in, the internal conditions, you do have control over that, right? And sometimes I wish I had more control over that than I do, but you, we oh. do, you do have control over what you organize. And coming, we were about to come into a presidential year, 2024, and we really wanted to cohere all of these different elements that you talked about and help to, I think, articulate what we felt internally we had achieved, which, which is the, the basic elements of us, not just as like a nice progressive organization, but us collectively as a third force. And so that's, what, that's why we pulled the trigger on, on having this national convention in order to demonstrate to us as a party that our aspirations are actually grounded and also is 25 years since we started. Mm. So it was a perfect sort of inflection point to look back at the past 25 and to look forward at the next 25 and, and to, and to ch challenge everybody to step out of the proximal thinking where you're only focused on the next election year mm. and actually think what we could build, build together over the next one to two decades. Um, and so we thought it was like a great opportunity to have that particular conversation and to challenge everybody to really think about party building, which is different than institution building one institution at a time, mm -hmm. but building a center of gravity that includes many, many institutions, many, many actors that are all committed to a particular direction and a particular North Star, which is like, to me, like the the crown jewel of organizing, right? And I think sometimes for good reasons, and I think reasons that have to do with our lack of vision or our lack of appetite, or sometimes the cynicism that we get in that convinces us that we can't, we, oftentimes in our spaces, we don't aspire mm -hmm. to that level of organizing, mm -hmm. which is not about any one self-interested piece. It's all of the pieces together. Right. So I want to pick up on that and reflect a little bit more on this moment that we're in, because that was one of the things that I took. And that's what that was so inspiring is the long term vision and thinking about the moment that we're in and that and as I mentioned about, you know, a decade or two or three there. You, you have people from different states presenting their plans. So here's where we want to be in 2028. Here's where I want to be in 2038. Here's where I want to be in 2048. And I was like, wow, that is a long term thinking. But I feel this moment demands that. And so that's I think, is what is so encouraging about the people and groups and leaders who are have that level of breadth of vision, both historically as well as what has to happen where we're going. And so I wanted to get your thoughts in terms of looking at, you know, in terms of being a student of history in this moment that we're in. And there's been a lot more um, discussion just more recently around the civil rights movement, right? So the Obama-produced documentary, Rustin, is out. A lot of people are watching that. I've been reading the book, Jonathan Ives' book, King, which goes in great granular detail about the building of the movement. Like, I didn't actually realize how much Brown versus Board of Education decision shaped the environment that then emboldened people in Montgomery to do the Montgomery bus boycott. But I don't know how much, there's a, but the world is very different as well now today, just in terms of yeah. social media and technology, et cetera. And so I'm just very curious, what do you think as somebody who I see is trying to carry on that 
tradition and that lineage around what from that time period, civil rights movement in particular, should we be holding to? And then what about these current conditions demand new thinking and strategy and tactics? I'm very curious what your assessment of that is. I do think that there's something about a Black-led multiracial coalition, Mm. right? And I think when we've had the most success at um, making significant and sustained leaps, um, that those elements have been in the place. Like the civil rights movement was always multiracial in some form and always had black leadership. And, you know, I don't want to go in too much about why I think that's true, but I do think that's true. And I think we should um, be curious about why that's been true mm. and what we could learn about that in building the multiracial broad containers that allow everybody to see themselves in the present. Um, one of the things that, so I'm one of the folks that helped to build the movement for black lives from 2014 on. And one of the interventions we were attempting to make was that around how we constructed leadership. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean is, and I saw the Rustin film and it was quite good. I was actually really pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't, I don't like I'm I'm in you know I'm involved in a lot of uh, social justice work, but sometimes when I'm watching TV, I just want to just want to watch some like reality TV. Oh yeah, no, I, <laughs> so, I, I, Charlene, yeah, yeah. Charlene needles me for watching these Norwegian murder mysteries. Though, like sometimes I just want to see a white detective try to figure out which white person killed the white Norwegian, right? So. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I um, the the film director Haile uh, Garima, who I went to Howard, so he he taught and think teaches at Howard, he, he he often says like, yeah, sometimes when I go to the movies, I I just try to find the whitest movies so I don't like activate my critical thinking and I could just enjoy myself, you know? So, um, but yeah. So the thing around leadership, so what the Rustin film I thought did really well is like, it really showed the the labor involved in organizing anything mm-hmm. right and how many people it takes and how diverse the thinking has to be right and it, it wasn't one of these reductive civil rights stories which just focused on like a preacher in a suit which i really appreciated mm-hmm. and so you know the in the movement for black lives one of the things that we attempted to do was to demonstrate what a leaderful movement looked our, our movements have always been leaderful, but they weren't necessarily the way that we understood leadership wasn't constructed in that way. It was mm-hmm. like there's a guy who's a religious leader in right. a suit. Right. Like that's that's the leader. Right. right. And so we we very intentionally elevated this idea that, you know, there's always a lot of people involved and we're going to try to demonstrate that. And we also wanted to demonstrate that the identities of the leaders, like the bodies that that the leadership is contained in, look all different types of ways. And there's always been LGBTQ people and women. And so the movement for Black Lives, I think very creatively, and I think we demonstrated that, yeah, look, there's not just one person, there's a lot of people across a lot of different Black identities. Now, the one thing that I think I've learned from that experience is that the leaderful thing, almost some people, took from that the idea that, oh, anybody could be a leader. Mm. And I think we need to be a little bit more precise about that. Like, I think leadership can be found anywhere, but everyone is not prepared for leadership. Right. It's not equally prepared for leadership, right? And in the present, it's actually really important that we say multiple things. Leadership does matter, mm-hmm. right? The individuals that we elevate to, to leadership positions, it really does matter. It's not just one person or one dude. It's a variety of people. And however, it's not everyone, which means we need to be discerning about the qualities. And I think the qualities that we really need today are the the skills, the social emotional skills, the strategic skills that allow for coalition building, allow for leaders that are able to operate at a span that's much greater than themselves or much greater than their organization, number one. I think number two, we need leaders that are able to see much farther than just five inches past their nose. Mm-hmm. We need visionary in this particular moment. And that so we need to be searching for vision, the ability for people to make assessments about the present 
and the future, two or three or four decades into the future, or even more, and leaders who whose the breadth of their leadership can contain many, many people, many, many identities. And there, there's like, I think, a alchemy where you rooted in your story and your identity and allows you to represent the interests of people far, far past your story and your identity. And so I even talk a little bit about this, about identity politics and how how it was initially developed. Uh, and, you know, some of the work and writing of the Coenby River Collective talk about identity politics as a as a venue for solidarity and how in present day identity politics has been deprived of the co- the political context in which it was developed. And so people are using their identity and using their personal story for narrow self-interest and not for the broader interest of building a bigger we. And so I think there's something to learn about how leadership is constructed in various moments and how the broader conditions require us to figure out what type of, what quality of leadership we need. And so perhaps in the context of the civil rights movement in the late 60s, early 70s, or even in the, the 50s, all the way into the early 70s, there the type of leadership that was unitary, almost singular, mm-hmm. that type of leadership, the way that was constructed was useful for, for that moment. But we, we saw the limitations. We often saw how if you if you could cut down one leader, you could destabilize a, a movement. Right. And so we tried to learn from that. And I think we're still learning from that. And mm-hmm. I, I would say that, yes, we need to actually be um, intentional and forthright about building leadership that that could hold multiple people, multiple identities, but also be very, very discerning about the qualities and the skills and the social emotional skills to be able to hold a lot of people and to be able to help make meaning of conflict because conflict isn't bad. It can be generative, but it takes certain special skills in order to generate the best things out of conflict. And that could also be able to look down the pass in order to help people focus on a north. Yeah, I just want to pick up quickly on this leadership point. As I mentioned, I've been reading about in a much more granular way, appreciating this, uh, the Montgomery uh, bus boycott. And so, yes, King, a man and a uh, minister in a tie. And then there's been some more understanding of Rosa Parks' role and all of that. But you had this combination. So there was a black lawyer, Fred Gray, who was very instrumental in thinking through and planning out and what would the legal strategy be and being ready and maybe prepared. And then Joanne Robinson, right, a black woman professor at Alabama State University, helped create the, the women's organization that did the nitty gritty work of printing out 30,000 flyers to hand out across the city. So all those different elements of leadership were required to be able to, to respond to that moment. And one thing I want to say about printing out 30,000 flyers, because you mentioned social media. And so I remember in the beginning of the movement for Black Lives, it really frustrated me. Like people kind of, oh, I think overdid it when it came to how the movement was like a, a Twitter phenomenon or a social media phenomenon and all these other things. The, the reality is, and it's as simple to me as this, that organizers use the most readily available technology in order to get the word out. Right. And the most readily available technology during the civil rights movement was this amazing ability to be able to churn out 30,000 flyers. Yeah. That was like, that was the Twitter yeah, of yeah, that yeah. era. That was the cutting edge technology. Exactly. And we just used the tools that were available to us, but it wasn't as though the technology was the beating heart of the movement. Right. It was, you know, the organizing, which, exactly. you know, without that, we, we couldn't have built what we built. Yes, the m- mimeograph machine. The mimeograph. <laughs> I remember. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Twitter and Instagram are just like our version of the mimeograph. Yep. So Maurice, we know we're heading into 2024, another presidential election cycle. And I wanted to ask you what you feel is the most important thing to focus on in 2024? Sure. Well, I think two things. I'm not a big fan of hard dichotomies and binaries, right? Mm. And so one of the binaries or dichotomies that bedevil me is this idea that, you know, there's some people who are focused on the proximal thing, like winning the next election. And then there's other people who are thinking about the 
the long-term big structural stuff. And those are two separate people, two separate、mm. sets of thinking. And I think that that's one of the reasons why people on the pro-democracy side have been so frustrated is because we've put these two types of thinking in different categories, right? I think it's really important that that with 2024 we think about the proximal stuff and we think about the long. And so、mm. how I how that comes together is the reality that we need to think about the proximal stakes and we need to have a sober understanding as best as we can and kind of game out in. And unfortunately, like we talked about, it will be a binary choice between two candidates, right? Right. I wish the I wish we had a multi-party democracy where that wasn't the case, but that would be that would be the case. And so we don't know who the candidates are, but it looks like Trump is doing really well, and it's、mm-hmm. it's likely to be Trump. But things could change, right? All types of things could change. And、uh, Biden is by far the leading candidate, but all types of things could change. Uh, but putting those two people aside, generic Republican governance, and I already talked about who the Republican Party is today, right? Right. And right. Generic Democratic Party governance, and just think about what they've actually said they want to do. I think we should take them seriously and literally, and we should listen to them. They're not being coy about it. The Republicans want to use the government as a tool. To be able to settle scores, to be able to take on their political enemies, to use government as a tool to spread their cruelty, right?、Mm. The Democratic Party has also shared some of the things that they want to do, right? And again, I'm I'm building a third party that is that lives in and around the, but is also like outside、mm. of, the, of the Democratic Party as well. And I'm listening to what they're saying. And what they're saying is that they actually recognize, and this is something new after forty years of this neoliberal consensus that trickle-down economics and traditional neoliberalism has been discredited, and they're、mm-hmm. open to an industrial policy that focuses on everyday people. That's important、mm-hmm. information if you're an everyday、yeah. person,、mm-hmm. right?、Um, and so what we're talking about is a pretty stark choice between. Like textbook authoritarianism,、mm-hmm. and at least the beginning of a post neoliberal economic order that is focused on regular people, right? And so, I think people should actually wrestle with the fact that that is what's happening proximally, right? Now, let's take a step back and talk about the long term. For me, I think one of the problems with American politics. Or one of its deficits is how focused, and it makes sense because American culture is like focused on individuals, and you know we have this current of of individualism and the、yeah. you know rugged individual, all of that, right?、That's、and right. so American、yeah. politics are is generally like obsessed with individual personalities, right? Like,、mm-hmm. and most people engage, especially presidential politics, from the standpoint of like, all right, that guy Biden or that guy Trump or whoever, do I? Do I like them? Do I trust them? Right, and perhaps, perhaps, do I agree with their policies? And that's basically the the prism in which most people engage politicians, especially on the presidential level. And what I would argue is that focus on liking and trusting your partner or your mom <laughs> or your friend.、Right? Like, don't don't spend any of that emotional energy on on politics. Right. The question, the long term question, the strategic question that. You should be asking yourself: Is if this person becomes president, what does that do for the prospects of of my long term strategy? What benefits or challenges? Right. That's actually the question we're trying to resolve. And when we make endorsements, we're not endorsing a person because you don't you don't have that relationship with them. You're endorsing a terrain of struggle in order to advance your long term strategy. Now. If you try to answer the question, you're like, I don't have a long-term strategy. You develop one or find an organization that does have one and adopt it, <laughs> and then try to answer that question. But these are strategic questions, and if you're not answering the questions strategically, then the the two parties are more than happy to take your vote and to advance a strategy all their own without your participation. And so, what I want to bring people into is a strategic sensibility. I believe in the American people. And I think if we call the American people into a strategic 
sensibility and call the American people into a shared strategic alignment that they will take it on. This is why I do party building. Mm -hmm. It's one of the things that parties should be doing because of the very limited party competition in this country. It's one of the things that the two major parties don't spend a lot of time doing. It's become Mm -hmm. kind of like two sort of uh, marketing schemes rather than Mm -hmm. actually helping to develop people's strategic orientation. And everyday people without fancy degrees can engage that. How do I know? I look around the world. I look at South Africa and the ANC. Who, like, how, how if you are a grandmother living in Soweto, working as a domestic worker, how, how do you develop that deep commitment to the idea of Black freedom when there's no indicator that that's ever going to happen in your lifetime, right? Right, Because the ANC had a real presence in her life and trusted her to understand the strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, we actually need to do that strategic work to help make meaning of what 2024 is. Yeah. This is one of the reasons why the, the far right has attacked labor organization, right? Labor organizations were one of the places where everyday working people in the double digits were able to make meaning, make political meaning. And their union, their union stamp of approval meant something and helped them understand what direction they went. This is why organizing is so important. And this is why political decisions should not be made individual by individual. This is why political decisions have to be made collectively so that collectives of people could wrestle with, debate, share ideas, and come to a political consensus together. That's that's how you're able to actually advance a particular agenda. And this is why the right wing wants us to believe that we're just atomized individuals, that there's mm-hmm. no society, right. that right. it's a waste of time to organize, right? Because they know when people come together and are able to have it out and wrestle with ideas together and debate and then come to a consensus and then move towards that consensus and then have that strategic sensibility, that's when the good stuff starts to happen. Mm-hmm. And so, and and one of the reasons why I like elections is that it gives us practice every cycle every two years every one year if you're focusing on every single election including the municipal elections which which we are it creates opportunities for us to practice once again getting everyday people not just to vote for candidate a or candidate b but to be part of a closer and closer political agreement with one another this is what organizing is this is the promise of of party building and when parties are actually working the way they should be working and people have a party identity and their party isn't just voting for this one person at this one time, but the party might be the bar that they go to. The party might be the people that they hang out with. The party is a social and political and almost a spiritual environment. That's one of the ways that that everyday people feel a sense of hope and, and togetherness. Like, one of the I'm not surprised that the Surgeon General, for example, recently said that we have a epidemic of loneliness. Mm-hmm. It makes sense. It makes sense because we're so disconnected. Yeah. And loneliness, despair, on top of economic insecurity and physical insecurity and a lack lack of physical safety, this this is the perfect petri dish for right-wing authoritarians mm-hmm. to come and sweep mm-hmm. in, which is why it's so important for us to do the solidarity organizing mm-hmm. to repel the right-wing authoritarians. And uh, one of the reasons why organizing isn't just a nice thing now, it's a mandate mm. because they're more than willing to engage with some level of curiosity and their faux care, but it feels real to working people who are like, I'm afraid, I can't make ends meet. Things aren't working out for me. And they say, yes, yes, mm-hmm. I see you. Mm-hmm. I see, I, yeah. you know, believe your eyes and ears. Yeah. I hear you. Yeah. And work with me. Work with me so I could help you restore your dignity. Right. So I could help you protect your family. Yeah. Right. And and so when I think about when I think about 2024 and I think about the proximal thing, it's a very it's a very stark. And I know every election is like the most important election of our lifetime. Right. This couldn't be more stark. Right. Because many of those people in the MAGA wing of the Republican Party who currently run the Republican Party, they have practice now. Right. And so we do have a stark proximal choice and we have this long term opportunity, I think, 
to actually do the deep organizing of working people so that we're not every election re-debating whether or not we're going to be a democracy. That can only happen through the sustainable. Right. And that's, right. that's, that's, a, that's it's just both. It's both. Both yeah. and. Right. So we're up against the end of the time, but I know Charlene had a quick question because I do think it's important right. to wrap with this in terms of leadership, the duration, the multidimensionality of us as individuals. So Charlene, you want to ask your cultural related question and we can wrap? I want to ask my cultural related question, which is we are not going to let our listeners forget um, those who might have listened to the first conversation when we talked, uh, but I never forgot and I'm still excited about the fact that you are an Afropunk musician and that you come, you know, you're an artist. And okay. I see you like, you know, you're like when even when you talk, you're animated. It's like he's on stage and now he's he's in the zone and he's rocking out. And so I did get to check out some of your band's videos lately. And I got to tell you, I loved it. I love it. That's my jam. Uh, you may not know this. That don't let the nice Chinese lady, middle aged Chinese lady demeanor appearance fool you. But I was. Wanted to let you know, I may or may not have been that mom lately on a tough day, closed the bathroom door and just cranked Rage Against the Machine. (laughs) And so I uh, was uh, really enjoying getting to see you play and listen to your music. So my question is, I know you're so busy and you are a dad and you are, you know, political leader and movement leader. Curious these days if you are still finding time to make music and if not, you know, what, what is it that you, how do you still incorporate art and music into your life? Oh, great question. So the answer is yes, I still, if I panned, you would see a piano and a guitar, like right, on, yeah. right over All there. Right. Right? So in between my Zoom calls, I will <laughs> play a little bit and I, I find ways of like making sure that music is still present in my life. That band that I started when I was a teenager, we're all still close friends. And occasionally, every now and then, when the when the right promoter asks us to come together, it's an opportunity for us as 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 longtime friends to get together and play. So that does happen maybe once every two years. And I think we're actually going to be playing in New York and Long Island in February. So oh, that's, yeah. That's, yeah, I still find these little mm. opportunities. And then, and then lastly, I'm able to get maybe a little bit of that feeling that I used to get on stage when I was crisscrossing the country. By the way, like, it's interesting. When I look back on my life and I think of all the experiences I I had, crisscrossing the country as a young person and, like, you know, playing in some of these very, very remote towns in the Bible Belt and, like, a lot of that has prepared me to mm-hmm. be able to organize across race, across region. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I... I remember feeling really awkward and playing this town. I was the only black person. And um, and then afterwards, the promoter invited me to their parents' house and me me waking up. I think the parents were like preachers or something. And they made this great uh, breakfast. And I was like, oh, wow. Like, I just, I didn't know what mm. white people in the South would be like or whether or not this would be cool or, you know. But um, the way that I feel like I'm able to weave in the creative has a lot to do with how I'm approaching organizing. So those elements of culture that, Steve, that you saw at the WFP National Convention, they weren't by chance. Mm-hmm. Every mm-hmm. element of the convention was vetted and thought out. And uh, part of it was how are we, and you know, I, I write about this, I, uh, like how are we ensuring that our work is human and humane and people trade in culture? Right. Mm-hmm. It's like That's and right. it's you know, one of the things that frustrates me about the how professionalized the culture of some organizing has become mm-hmm. is that when you think about the civil rights movement and and you think about a lot of a lot of our mass movements, they were grounded in a particular culture. Think about movements in general, not just in this country. They're grounded in a particular culture. They had their artists. They had their songs. They had their dances. They had their and we've. For some reason, I feel like we've put that to the background. Mm. And so a lot of what we're doing at, at WFP is foregrounding culture, right? And it's like, you're, yeah, the agenda of the meeting is important, but the food that you eat is important mm. as well. It's almost, mm. almost as important. And the music that you hear and, and the, it's our job to make our movements irresistible. That's mm. our job. It's, it's, it's not our job to get to every point in an agenda. It's our job to make our movement irresistible. And so when I'm like, I get to the creative part of my job is like the writing that I do 
and I'm on more stages now because people are both inviting me to speak and I'm putting myself in, in places where I'm speaking publicly. And I get to do some of the lyrical stuff. I get to, you know, like I got to speak at the convention and it was a real pleasure to like work on that speech and figure out how how do I weave in something that might sound dry like political education with story and with spirit. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes my artistic sort of challenge. How do I do that with with language, right? And so those are some of the ways that we that I get to continue to keep my artist self alive in this work. Um, like ultimately, ultimately humans, one way I think about this, right, is like humans across the board enjoy a good time, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like, you know, and like, you know, children play as we grow, we never lose that desire to lean into play. Mm -hmm. And I think if we, like so much of our politics becomes about like metrics and these weird algorithms that we focus on in order to try to be as efficient as possible. And it's just like, I think that that is, that totally misses the point of politics. Politics are about people, people are emotional. And trying to make your politics efficient is just like, mm. th like you know, there's no, there's no campaign manager who, who after a losing election was like, let me tell you how efficient that was. Right, right, right. <laughs> right, that, that never happens, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, uh, let me tell you the efficiencies that we, we, we figured out how to pour out of that campaign. It's like, did you win? <laughs> right? And so um, I actually, like, I, I think that if you're serious about power, you need to be serious about fun and you need mm. to be serious about where people are at. You need to be serious about culture. You need, and you need to not, skip any steps as it relates to that that can't be manufactured that has to there's a way that like thanksgiving just passed right and there's a way that 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 sweet potato pie that your mom or your grandma or you make it tastes different than the thing that you bought in the store you know and right. we need to we need to get back to that root because that is contagious that is irresistible that will that is what movements are made of it's just like i want to be there and it's like you know, so much of the instructions, the step-by-step -step instructions that we try to imbue on people, they don't, that that doesn't work from the top ground, from the top down. Like, this is how you need to be, and that's how you need to be, and these are our standards. You know, the first time you go to a wedding of a culture you've never been to, you don't, you don't, need, it doesn't take you too long to just figure out how to get along, right? First time you go to an Indian wedding, it's like, you're not like, okay, I need Indian wedding practice. You just go and you adopt the culture of the people around because you want to fit in and have fun. And there's so much in terms of the mores and values of a movement that could be imparted through, through making sure that the party is, is right that I think we miss. It's like people are not star, although we need to have great information, people are not star starved of information, people are starved of connection. If you bring the connection, then the connection could be a delivery system for all types of information. Yeah. And so as an artist, that's the thing that I'm, I'm sitting with. It's like, how are we weaving connection and how are we taking mm. the best of us, mm -hmm. our culture, in order to make that happen? Yeah, yeah, you may, oh, I'm a, I'm a writer. You make me think about the, uh, Vincent Harding wrote this book um, called There Is a River, A Black Struggle for Freedom. And I remember the intro to it and he talks about the rise of the civil rights movement and then the sit-in movement. And he says, part of it, people say that the criticism was that it was in fashion. And then he says, but what a fashion it was to be in, right? In terms of mm. wanting to be mm -hmm. part of something like that. That's right. Okay, so we could go on forever, but then our producers would not be happy. And so we need to wrap this up. Really appreciate the time with you, Maurice. We appreciate your work. And, um, you know, keep on keeping on. Really appreciate you being with us today. Appreciate you all. Thank you for the all opportunity. Right. All right, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or Instagram. You can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others to find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. 
Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for Quality Check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, and as we head into the holidays, if you're serious about power, you have to be serious about fun, as our guest shared. Until next time, keep safe.